This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Do you ever come across something from time to time that you just go, I don't know what in the world to do with that? So I saw this story this week online of this guy. They are calling him the duct tape bandit. Um, that doesn't seem like a very good plan to me. I don't think he thought this through very well. He duct taped his face. And no, he wasn't smart enough to do like double-sided duct tape. No, no, no. If you read the actual article, no, he legit just stuck the sticky stuff to his face. And then couldn't, <laughs> and then they had trouble getting it off of him once he got to the police station and he was caught. The duct tape bandit. I don't know what to do with that. You probably should have just went and bought a ski mask. I don't know. Uh, I mean, probably shouldn't rob someplace. That be, might be a good place to start. But I don't know what to do with that. And oftentimes, I feel like our church hurt kind of falls in that category, right? Like, we don't know what to do with it. We have the, this scenario where we've been hurt in church. Someone's hurt us, or maybe we've even hurt someone else, and we don't know what to do with that. And that's why we're in this series, When Church Hurts, because church hurts a real thing. We've been talking about that. Pastor Jamie set that stage for us very well um, a couple weeks ago. It's a real thing. And the Bible isn't silent about it. The Bible isn't surprised by it. In fact, there are entire books of the Bible that are written kind of around this idea of how do we deal with church hurt? So our big idea for this morning is this. I will handle my church hurt God's way. I will handle my church hurt God's way. That's our heart. That's our intention to handle our church hurt God's way. Now, this is part two of a two-part series, so or two-part message. So if you missed last week's message by Pastor Jamie, jump online, check that out on the podcast. That will be helpful. I'll give you a slight recap now. So we're pulling a lot of our material from the book, uh, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. If you haven't read that book, I highly recommend you get it and read it. Um, if you want to know how to deal with conflict in a biblical way, there is no better resource that I know of to help you illuminate the truths of the Word of God in dealing with conflict biblically. So I'm going to be uh, leaning heavily on that book this morning. A lot of the principles are straight from that book, um, so we're grateful for Ken Sandy's work in that. So last week, so it's four main points throughout the book, okay? So the first is glorify God. Pastor Jamie hit that last week. The idea is that conflict brings us an opportunity to give God glory because everything gives us an opportunity to bring God glory, right? So conflict gives us the opportunity to show other people who God is, reflecting who he is to them. That is our potential in conflict. The second is get the log out of your own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. Before you ever look horizontally to deal with conflict, you need to look vertically with the Lord and understand how do I get right with the Lord before I go get right with people around me. That's the idea of get the log out of your own eye, right? I was in the wrong somehow too, most likely, or even if I wasn't, I want to make sure I'm right with the Lord before I get there, okay? That's the idea of get the log out of your own eye. Obviously, Pastor Jamie alluded or unpacked that much, much better last week, so go back and listen to that if you haven't. But for today, we have two main points for today, the third and fourth points of the book, and the first one is this, gently restore, gently restore. Let me also stop and pause. If you open your bulletins, there's a little insert that Jill 
is massively helping you out. So there's a lot of content in what we're going to get through today, and there's a lot of lists. So these lists are there so that you don't have to furiously write as I talk. You can just take it in, jot notes beside the list if you're a note taker, and just have the, the content there so you don't have to try to keep up. And I am type A as well, so I understand if I only get three of four points that that's going to wreck me for the rest of the sermon. So I'm trying to help you out with that. So have that beside you as well. That, that'll be a help for you. So gently restore is the first one. Um, Irv just read for us Matthew 18. So Matthew 18, generally we start in verse 15 when we start considering uh, this idea of restoration and even church discipline, right? We usually just pick up at 15. I had Irv start reading in verse 10 because that gives some massive context to verse 15, right? Look back with me at the parable of the lost sheep. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And then what happens? If your brother sins against you, go get him, right? That's significant. We're coming out of this idea of God wants restoration. He wants the, the one brought back to the 99. That's significant. We go after stray sheep. Conflict gives us an opportunity to pursue sheep that are straying, right? Because they are stepping outside of the word of God and sinning. And as we go to approach them and bring that to them, that is an opportunity for us to show the grace of God to them, to try to bring back that stray, which God clearly tells us in his word, he is about that stray sheep. It's not just, well, they're just off doing their own thing. It's fine. No, like we need to go after stray sheep. It brings joy and rejoicing to the father when a stray sheep returns. And so it should bring joy and rejoicing to our hearts as we're aligning our passions with the Lord when we pursue a stray sheep and they return. So let's just kind of high level look at what Matthew 18 is talking about just from a process standpoint. So what are the steps in Matthew 18 that we're lining out? So you have this in your insert so you don't have to furiously catch up with me. But step one is this, overlook minor offenses. So if you can overlook it, then we're good to go. We don't have to even pursue them because I can overlook that offense well, how, how do I know if I should overlook that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Number one question you should ask is, is it dishonoring to God? If it's dishonoring to God, then you probably shouldn't overlook it. Like if God clearly calls it sin in his word, then it needs addressed. If it's visible enough to obviously and significantly affect a Christian's witness, then it needs to be addressed. We don't need to sweep that under the rug. We need to go to that person. Number two, is it damaging your relationship? If you're unable to forgive an offense, that is your feelings, your thoughts, your actions, your words towards the other person have been altered because of this event that has occurred, you need to go to them. The offense is probably too serious to overlook if you keep thinking about it, so go to them. The other is this, is it hurting other people? Is it a direct 
threat to someone's safety or health, then you need to go to them. Are they somehow setting a bad example for others in the church, for their family? Then you probably need to go to them. Remember, Scripture tells us that a little yeast leavens the whole bread, right? So if there's potential that this thing is going to become a bigger thing because they have impact in other people's lives, then you need to go to them. That's biblical. The fourth is this. Is it hurting the offender? Okay, so maybe it's not impacting other people, but it's hurting them. It's something that um, might cause them harm. Then go to them. And that's not just physical harm. Like, is there spiritual damage done between them and the Lord? Like, go to them in love. That's what you should do. So we want to overlook minor offenses unless they fall into the category. So if you're answering yes to any of those four questions, then you're going to step two and you're going to do this. You're going to talk in private. So you're going to go to your brother. Look at verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between who? You and him alone. You and him alone. So it's not a party at this first confrontation. It's you and him. You're going to him. You're trying to uh, win a brother by telling him his fault, bringing uh, just you and him. Step three is this. Take one or two others along. Take one or two others along. So um, turn with me. Just flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Um, you can see um, Jamie has alluded to this, so let's read it. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 2. I entreat, Jamie just says this because he likes to say these words, Yoda, <laughs> and I entreat Synthike <laughs> to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Why read that? Because Paul is emphasizing what's happening in Matthew 18. Like he's telling them, go. There's trouble here. They're not listening. Go. Bring somebody else. Go help figure this thing out with them. That's the next step. That might be mutual agreement. Yeah, like we need to bring somebody else into this because there's this disagreement and we're not getting around this thing. Or it might be like just you take the initiative because they didn't hear you the first time and they're still sinning in the pattern that you're trying to help them come out of. Again, the heart is restoration of a straying sheep. Then step four is this, tell it to the church. So I've gone to my brother. I've taken somebody else to go with my brother. They're still not listening. So now we're telling it to the church. And then step five is treat him as a non-believer. Treat him as a non-believer. Three important purposes, I think, for why we treat someone as a non-believer a, it removes uh, membership from them. So we're talking about members of a body of Christ. This is written to the church, about the church. So it removes their membership. It protects the church. It also protects the name of Christ, right? If we're treating them as an unbeliever and they're going off and they're sinning, we're saying, look, they, we're treating them as though they aren't a believer in Christ, and so the name of Christ is 
protected in all of that because they are not a believer. The second is this. It protects other believers from being led astray. Again, we go back to this principle of a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? So if somebody is in and they're sinning and they have impact and everyone has some level of impact within the body of Christ, then there is potential for that to increase and them to bring other people astray. And so we're trying to protect the church in all of that. And the third is this, it helps the rebellious person realize the seriousness of his or her sin and hopefully to turn from it and be restored, right? The heart of all of this is restoration. If this is somewhat new to you, you might feel like, man, this seems like kind of a harsh process. Like, we're going to like declare somebody's sin in front of the church? Like, that's, that's no small thing. And it's not a small thing. And the point is it's not a small thing because sin isn't a small thing. And so we want to pursue and go after people who are straying sheep. We want to love them enough to do the hard things, to show them the seriousness of their sin. And let me tell you, it's much harsher not to confront sin. Much harsher not to confront sin. Let me prove it to you biblically. Leviticus 19.17 says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So if I don't go to my brother, I'm not trying to reason, I'm not trying to help him see his, his weakness, I'm actually hating my brother. Or how about this? Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Does it hurt when people come to you when you're acting sinfully? For sure. Because we all want to believe we're better than we are. And yet, faithful are those wounds. I think hopefully all of us can look back at points in our life where somebody has called us to the mat on something and be grateful for that person and grateful for those words, even though I didn't want to hear it in the moment. How about this? James 5 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Look, what's at stake if we don't pursue these lost sheep? What's at stake, church, according to James 5? They're going to wander and wander and wander. Look, we've been in the book of Hebrews, and there's this idea in the book of Hebrews all throughout it that there are people among us who believe they are saved and really aren't. And so if we don't pursue those sinners, if they don't get an opportunity to repent of that sin, that might be the thing that drew them back to the Lord or drew them to the Lord in the first place, right? We want to pursue wandering sheep. It might seem harsh, but we get this, right? Like, is it harsh for me to make my kids eat something other than chocolate? Like, my kids both love them some chocolate. Like, love them some chocolate. They might get it honest from both their mother and me, because <laughs> we like our chocolate in the Boylan household. And probably not a day goes by where one of them doesn't ask for chocolate for breakfast. Hey, can I, can I have a candy bar? No, you can't have a candy bar. Just like yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that. You can't have a candy bar for breakfast. 
Is it harsh for me to say that? They want the candy bar. They want the candy bar. No, obviously it's not harsh. I don't think the nutritional value of chocolate is in question in this room. Like, it's delicious, but probably not the most nutritional thing that you can eat, right? We all agree to that? I mean, sorry if I burst your bubble and you were going to eat chocolate for lunch. But it's not harsh for me to do that because it's not what's best for my kids, right? Them eating chocolate for three meals a day is not what's best for them. So it's not harsh, even though it's not what they would prefer, and it often leads to some level of conflict in our home, sometimes full-on meltdown, but that's not harsh because it's not what's best for them. And so it's not harsh for us to go and tell something to the church. It's not harsh for me to treat someone as an unbeliever when they continue in sin and won't listen to a brother and they won't listen to the church and they won't listen to a group of people. That's not harsh. It's actually loving. Because where their sinfulness will lead them is far worse than the pain of being put in front of a church. I've walked through church discipline in this church and other churches where both things have happened where someone just continued off and never came back. And then I've walked through instances where it was told to the church and that person came back and restored and the church rejoiced and it was a great and awesome thing. I've seen it work both ways. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. And if we, as a church, are gracious and loving and how we do it. Why do we tell it to the church? So that the church can go after them, right? Like, we want what's best for them. We want them to be living under the authority of the word of God. We want the relationship with the Lord to be as close as it can. That's why we tell it to the church. So we can go after them as a church. It's not harsh. So I need to ask you this morning, as you're hearing this, and you're on... Step two, who do you need to go to? Who's the name that comes to mind for you of someone who there's strained relationship there? They've sinned against you. Maybe you've sinned against them. Who do you need to go to? So let's dive a little deeper into this concept. What does it look like to live this out? Because we can do this really poorly, right? Right? We can do this really, really poorly. We can have the best of intentions and still just botch this all over the place. So let's talk about how we do it. We speak the truth in love. So let's kind of break that phrase down together. So first we speak. I've kind of already beat this drum, but look back at Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Let's try that again. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go. You go. So whose job is it to go? Say, it's my job. So we go, we go face to face and we seek reconciliation. We go face to face and we seek reconciliation. Own it, go, it's hard, it stinks. Many of us hate conflict and will avoid it at all costs and yet the Bible says go. Go. How about this? Turn back uh, a few pages in Matthew to chapter 5. Matthew 5, 23. 
So Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, you go. Let's look at Matthew 5, verse 23 says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So if my brother sins against me, I go. And if I sin against my brother, I... So whose job is it to go? So reconciliation should sort of be this race to see who gets there first, biblically, right? Whose job is it to go? Okay, repeat this after me. In all conflict involving me, reconciliation is my job. Ready? In all conflict involving me, reconciliation is my job. So, Smokey the Bear always tells us what? Only you can prevent forest fires. Only you can prevent forest fires. So, Who's, who can prevent this discord? Whose job is it to go after and reconcile? What would Smokey the Bear tell us? Only you. Only you. In all conflict involving me, reconciliation is my job. So we speak. So again, I ask you, who do you need to go to? Who is it? Write it down in your notes. Think about it. Who do you need to reconcile with? Because whether you sinned against them or they sinned against you, it's your job. If you know somebody has something against you, you're not sitting there waiting for them to come against you, to come to you. You're going to them. You're pursuing it. Be eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 would tell us. So we speak. And what do we speak? We speak the truth. We speak the truth. Do you know what the first step of speaking truth is? Listening, actually. If you want to understand enough to respond, you have to first understand. And you can't understand without listening. We need to be people who are Quick to listen, James 1.19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak. How many of us are usually have that backwards? You don't really have to raise your hand, but I'm often in this category. I prefer to speak and then listen. Um, but we need to be quick to hear, and slow to speak. So let me, let me help you with this a little bit. Five, um, five listening words. Five listening words. These are in your little insert as well. But five listening words. The first is this waiting. Waiting. So the heart of the righteous person ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked person pours out evil things. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous person ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So what do we do when we don't listen? We make premature conclusions. We think immediate solutions. We assume we know. These are all things that are dangerous in conflict. Like 
Do you know the heart of the person who offended you? Everyone say, no, I do not. No, I do not know the heart of the person who offended me. And so we should not assume the heart of the person who offended us. We should believe the best. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, love believes all things. And that's real hard sometimes, isn't it? It's real hard to believe the best in people. And yet, we should believe the best as we're seeking to be loving, not being ignorant, not being unwise, but listen so that we don't make premature conclusions. So we need to be waiting. That means you don't interrupt them as they're talking, right? That's hard sometimes. That means I'm not thinking about what I'm going to respond to them before they stop talking. That's hard, right? Like, oftentimes they're saying something like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say to that. No, no, like, hear them out, listen, wait, slow down, listen. So waiting is the first word. The second is this, attending. So don't let your mind water. Be present. Attend. Do you know that the human brain can think four times faster than you can speak? So you could conceivably be thinking about three other things as your mouth is saying something else, theoretically. But guess what? We're really not that good at multitasking. So what's that mean? That means fight to stay in the conversation. Turn your phone off. Put it on mute. Don't think about what you want for lunch. Now you're all hungry. You're welcome. Fight to stay in it. Be attending. Number three, clarifying. If I'm going to listen well, I have to make sure I understood what they said. So I'm going to ask clarifying questions at the end. So are you saying... Or tell me more about that. Or can you give me example, an example of what you mean? Those sorts of phrases as I'm seeking to clarify every word that the person has said. Anything that you don't think you fully understand, clarify. So that you can understand their position and their heart. Again, why is this hard? Why is it hard for us? Because it's humbling. Why is it humbling? Because then I kind of have to admit that I might not see this all 100% accurately and that they might actually have been a little bit right in this scenario? Because very rarely is it black and white, 100% one person's fault, and 0% on the other side, right? Very, very rarely. So clarify, make sure you understand. Then be reflecting. Uh, so paraphrase. So what I believe you are saying is and paraphrase it so they can say, yeah, that's pretty accurate, or no, let me clarify this thing. Make sure you get it 100%. And then the last step of listening is agree with what you can agree with, be agreeing. So there's generally something within the conflict that you can agree with why the person did or was feeling the way that they were feeling. Agree with that. Find some common ground before you move to disagreement. So, 
You want to wait, attend, clarify, reflect, and agree. We want to be good listeners. In order to be able to accurately respond, you have to understand, right? I can't speak the truth if I don't know the truth that I should be speaking. If the issue is really this thing and I'm speaking to this thing, we're misfiring, right? You're not helping the situation because you're not actually responding to the right thing. Proverbs 18.13 says this, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. It's his folly and shame. So if we go in, guns a-blazing, thinking that we understand, it's our folly and shame. Slow down, listen. Slow down, listen. So the first step in speaking the truth is to listen. The next is this, speak the gospel. Is this our tendency when we approach conflict, to speak the gospel? It's not my default. I like to go right to the law. I like to say, here's the law that you broke. Here's the thing that you did wrong. Now let's figure out how you're going to fix that, right? That tends to be my approach, how I operate if I'm operating in default mode. But that's not the biblical approach to conflict, we need to bring the gospel to bear on a situation. Don't focus primarily on what they should or shouldn't be doing, but what God has done or is doing in their life. Let me, let me illustrate this. Flip over to 1 Corinthians. Paul gives us an example of this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, it's the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. I'll start reading in verse 2. So, does Paul address anything that's going wrong in the book of 1 Corinthians, for those of you familiar? A lot of things Paul blasts that are not going as well as he would like them to go in the church in Corinth. But look how he starts the letter. To the church of God that is in Corinth... To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little bit of gospel language there. Then read on. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Little gospel there, eh? A whole lot of gospel, a whole lot of reminding them who they are in Christ before he ever goes to, hey guys, you got some stuff wrong here. Let's talk about that. And then he's going to pull back to that same language over and over and over and not just say, law, 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 law. Yeah, we break, we break the law. That's why we need the gospel. So it's not that we're not ever going to get to the law. It's just not going to be the primary focus of what's happening. Let me give you a, a little more practical example. So say that um, we're talking about gossip and say um, that Betty gossiped about Bill. I don't know why Betty and Bill, but Betty gossiped about Bill. So um, Betty could go to Bill 
um, or Bill could go to Betty and say, you were gossiping and slandering. It's wrong. The Bible says it. I was hurt by it, so repent. That, that's an approach. Or could say, look, I, I don't think you deliberately set out to hurt me, but your words damaged my reputation. But here's the good news. Jesus died to deliver you and me from our sins. God has given us a warning and a promise. If we conceal our wrongs, he will discipline us until we repent. But if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and restore our relationship. There's hope in that. There's hope. And it's because of that hope that I'd really encourage you to make this right with the Lord. And we need to make this right. See the difference? They're both calling for repentance. Neither one is minimizing sin. And yet one gives hope. And it doesn't have to be as wordy and as eloquent as that. I sat in my office and crafted that phrase this week. But don't just beat somebody down with law because law isn't going to change them. If law could change them, they wouldn't need the gospel. The gospel changes us. The hope of a better ability to do it is not what changes us. It's the fact that Jesus already did it on my behalf, and because of that, I can obey. If we beat people down with law, they're just going to feel deflated. They're not going to change. They're not going to grow. That doesn't mean we minimize truth. We don't minimize truth, right? Say that. We don't minimize truth, and yet we don't minimize grace. And the grace of the gospel is the thing that primarily fuels us to grow and change. It's still true and right and good. And yet, the gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us the ability to actually lift our eyes from the law into the future. So, we listen, we speak the gospel and then we need to be really clear. We need to be really clear. That's the third step in speaking the truth. Ken Sandy said this in his book, The Peacemaker, it is not good enough to communicate so that you can be understood. You should communicate so clearly that you cannot be misunderstood. Don't just say it. Don't just go in with no plan, no thought process of where the conversation might go. Go in thoughtful, thinking, people who are going to attempt to engage a conversation in a way that I want to clearly communicate my point so that I can't be misunderstood. That's hard work. It's really easy to walk into a conversation half-hearted, not think about it, and just go, go with the flow. And yet, that's not all that helpful, <laughs> right? Like, we need to walk into confrontation with an understanding of clearly what I need to communicate. Make yourself bullet points. Whatever you need to do, like I need to be sure I communicate that these were the things that were hurtful. Our clear words, though, again, shouldn't be beating people down. They should be life-giving. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk 
come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. So building up looks different based on what we're doing and what conversation we're having, but it's all about building up. Just depends on the occasion that it may give what? It may give grace to those who hear. The process of going is about reconciliation. So if my heart is reconciliation, then my words should build up and not tear down. If my heart is about justifying my actions, then my words will often tear down. If my heart is about anything that isn't reconciliation, my words have the potential to tear down. If I want to make myself right and everyone else wrong, then I'm not going to be thinking about reconciliation. I'm not going to be thinking about my words building up. And if I'm going after the one sheep that's straying, that's going to change my approach. It's going to change my words. It's going to change my thought process. So it's not just truth, 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 truth at all costs. It's truth in grace. It's truth with the intent of building someone else up to give grace to the hearer. Be clear. So who in your life do you need to speak truth to? Who is it? Who's the person that as I'm sitting here talking keeps coming to mind that there's tension in that relationship that needs worked out? Who is it? Speak the truth. How do we speak it? We speak it in love. We speak the truth in love. Again, speaking the truth in love is all about restoration. It's all about reconciliation. If restoration is the goal, then speaking the truth in love will not be a one-size-fits-all, right? I can't go to this situation the same way I can go to this situation. Some people need me to be really direct based on the situation, and that's actually loving. And some people need me to be a little more flowery and encouraging in my words, and that's still loving. Do you understand? It's not a one-size-fits-all, and the Bible is not surprised by this. As I was studying this week, I found, just in my study alone, 11 different biblical words that encompass sort of this idea of going, Right? So the first is this, confess. Confess. So I'm going to confess to them what's happening. I'm going to teach. That's another word. That, that looks different than confession. Right? So I'm going to open the word of God. I'm going to make sure they understand it. I'm going to instruct is another word. I'm going to reason with. I'm going to show, encourage, correct, warn, admonish, rebuke, reconcile. There's a wide range of words there. Rebuke feels very different than warn. Hey, don't go that way. I've been there. It's not good. You're going that way. Stop. And yet both fall in this category of speaking the truth in love. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 gives us a little understanding of this, it says this, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. 
So it's talking about ministering to people who are struggling, which is what we're talking about really this morning, right? So do you uh, encourage the idol? No, you admonish the idol. Come on, let's go. Let's get on this. Let's do this. Do you encourage uh, the weak? No, you enter in and you help the weak. Do you admonish the faint-hearted? Why are, you, why are you so downcast? Come on, let's go. No, you encourage them. It's all truth, but it's truth in love. It's truth that fits the situation. Any of those things could be sinful, right? It can be sinful to be idle. It can be sinful to be faint-hearted. It can be sinful in the biblical understanding of the word weak there. Those things can all be sinful, and yet they don't all require the same approach from me. Jesus got this, right? Think, think back to the Gospels. Did Jesus approach the Pharisees the same way that he approached the woman at the well? No. What did he do with the woman in the well? He answered her questions. He knew. He knew she was an adulterous woman with multiple relationships. And he got there eventually, and yet his path there was very different than his path to the Pharisees often, that he just blasted. What about when he walked into the temple? Was that his same approach? No, he flipped over some tables and chased some dudes out with whips. Probably not the way we want to go with the faint-hearted. Paul did the same thing, right? When Paul walked into the temple in Athens, did he blast them for all the false gods that were there? No, what did, what did he say? He said, let me tell you about this unknown God that you have listed over here. Let me tell you about that one. We'll get to these other ones that are false gods, but let me just tell you about Jesus, and he just used that as a launching point to get there. He didn't start by blasting all their polytheism and his highfalutin theology, which obviously Paul has a lot of really grounded theology he could have used in that situation. That's not what he did there. Is that what he did with Peter? Now, he was a little more blunt with Peter in Galatians. He was a little more blunt with all the Galatians. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Like, that's different than even what we read in 1 Corinthians, right? Like, he didn't give all that flowery intro to Galatians. He just went for the jugular. Why? Because the situation was different. It required something different. So now some of you are probably sitting out there going, okay, well, I, I was with you that I need to go, and now I have no idea how to go because you just told me I got to go in the right way, and I'm really in trouble now. How do I know if I should encourage someone or admonish someone or teach them or rebuke them? Like, I, I don't know how to do that. Like, you, you just kind of made me feel like my hands are tied and I'm going to do it wrong. So what's the goal of church conflict, church? Reconciliation, restoration. So if we go with the heart of reconciliation, is there a chance we'll get it wrong? Yes. 
But if we go with the right heart of reconciliation, is that the right heart to get it right? What if I don't know? Well, the good news is we have this pretty awesome helper called the Holy Spirit. And more times than I could even possibly begin to fathom counting, I have walked into situations where I needed to talk to someone about something and had no idea what I needed to say. And so what did I do before I walked in there? I stopped, I prayed, I asked the Spirit to guide me. And not to freak you out, but there have been times where like there's words coming out of my mouth and I'm like, yeah, that's really good. I'm like, wait a minute, why am I thinking that? Because I'm not the one who thought it up. Like the spirit is literally guiding in those moments. We go with reconciliation. We trust the Holy Spirit. We pursue that. We seek the word of God to understand what the word of God has to say about the situation. And then we go and we trust, right? Don't be paralyzed. You've been called to go. Like whose job is reconciliation? It's your job. It's my job. So if you weren't sure how you were going to get it right, there you go. Ask the Spirit. Pursue in a heart of reconciliation. All right. That's the, the first point. <laughs> gently restore. Hope none of you have lunch plans. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Gently restore. The second point, hopefully, will be a little faster. Go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Okay, so really, the idea here is to be reconciled, we have to seek forgiveness, right? There has to be forgiveness in order for reconciliation to happen. Relationships can't move forward. They can't continue without forgiveness. There is no relationship you will ever enter into where you will not need to seek some level of forgiveness at some point, or they won't need to seek forgiveness with you. We're fallen humans. Sinners do what? They sin. The ability to forgive is essential to healthy relationships. It's essential to a healthy church. It's essential to dealing with church conflict. When church hurts, we need forgiveness. So let's start with this. Why should I forgive? Why should I forgive? Colossians 3 says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So why do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. Now that doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it comes naturally. But church, when we live in the depth of our forgiveness, we will be much more eager to forgive others. You will extend the depth of forgiveness when you understand the depth of your forgiveness. So um, I had the, I guess I'll call it a privilege of coaching Macarius softball team this year. Um, 12, six and seven year old girls 
um, running around a field attempting to play a game that none of them had any idea what in the world they were doing. And they said, hey, just teach them softball. Cool, thanks for the input, it's helpful. So I've played softball in church leagues, I've played baseball growing up, I, I have some understanding of the game, and yet that was tested over and over and over as I tried to teach a six-year-old girl what that meant. Like my ability to communicate to a six-year-old girl how to understand whether she should go to first base or third base if she's playing second, or first base or second base if she's playing second base was like, I, I understand this, but apparently I don't understand it well enough to teach it. I don't understand it well enough to actually get it. This is what we're talking about forgiveness, right? You might understand your forgiveness, but if you're not willing to extend it, how much do you really understand what you've been forgiven of? Who are you struggling to forgive right now? What does your struggle to forgive say about your understanding of your own forgiveness? So why should I forgive? The next is this, what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Let me start by explaining what forgiveness is not because surprise, surprise, our culture has this all messed up. What's the, the number one phrase about forgive? You should forgive and forget, right? You should forgive and forget. Well, I'm here to tell you that um, forgiveness is not forgetting. And why can I say that with confidence? Because if forgetfulness was required for forgiveness, then God couldn't forgive because he can't forget anything. He's all-knowing. And let's say this. Forgetting is a passive process. Do you actively forget your car keys when you walk out of the house? No. You actively walk back into the house to get the car keys that you forgot. Forgetting is passive, right? Like it just happens to us against our will. We don't love to forget things. I don't like to think, man, I, I, I memorized this verse when I was, a, I was a kid and I just, and you just can't get it in a moment. Like, I, I don't like that. I don't like walking out of the office hypothetically on a Friday, leaving my car keys and my house keys on the desk that I just locked the door to the church. I don't hypothetically enjoy that. Forgiving is active. Forgiving isn't passive. So forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiving is a constant process. Isaiah 43, 25 says this, I, the Lord, I am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Not I will forget them, I will choose not to remember them. Okay, that's different than just forgetting them. Choosing not to bring them back up is different than just letting it go. I hope it comes out of my mind. No, the, the process of forgiveness is more active than that. When it comes to my mind, I'm going to choose to remove it. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. If I only go to forgive someone when I feel like it, that's probably not going to happen real often. It's an act of the will. First, to call on God to change my heart. God, change my heart. And second, to decide not to think about it or talk about the hurt that's been done to me. 
That's an act of the will, and it's not a one-time thing, right? Like, it's not just forgiveness, and then I'm done, I'm on to the next thing. No, it's like forgiveness today, forgiveness in two hours, forgiveness in 30 minutes after that, like, because it happens over and over and over. It's not a feeling, it's not forgetting, it's not excusing. Forgiveness isn't, well, that's okay. No, it's not. It's sin. It's not okay. It's why sorry doesn't cut it for actual sinful relationships and sinful things that have happened in relationships, right? It's not okay to just say sorry because what, what's their response to sorry? Uh, it's, it's all right. But you just set them up to tell you that your sin's okay. It's not okay. It's, it's about forgiveness, we both know what you did was wrong and without excuse, but since God has forgiven me, I will forgive you. How about using that phrase? But we both know that what you did was wrong and without excuse, but since God has forgiven me, I will forgive you. Forgiveness. So that's some things that forgiveness isn't. What forgiveness is. I already said this. Forgiveness is a decision. It's a hard decision, too. You can't do it alone. That's the point. Ken Sandy gives this definition. To forgive someone means to release him or her from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. To forgive someone means to release him or her from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. There's several Greek words that are used to speak of forgive, one means to let go, to release, or remit. It refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. Another means to bestow favor freely or unconditionally. So it's a decision. It's a decision to forgive. And it's really a decision to make these four promises. These four promises. Four commitments of forgiveness, it's listed in your insert, four commitments of, of forgiveness. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to choose not to do that. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Ouch, that's a hard one. Have a fight with your spouse. They sought forgiveness you're having the same fight two weeks later. How easy is it to not bring that two-week-ago thing up again? Not very. Look, this doesn't mean never talk about it in an attempt to deal honestly with the habitual pattern of sin, okay? So we're not swinging the pendulum that far. Like, if that conversation happens 14 times in two weeks, then we have a habitual pattern we should probably talk about, right? That's not what we're talking about. But... On the flip side of that, don't use that as an excuse. Everything is not a habitual pattern that you need to talk about and bring up all the time. So I won't bring, this, bring up this incident again and use it against you. The third one is this. I will not talk to others about this incident. It's between them and you. You've granted forgiveness. No one else needs to know. The fourth is this. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So there are things that happen 
in our lives that have lasting impact, and yet I have to choose to put them in their place, right? So um, 27 days after Angela and I got married, we got robbed in our apartment and lost virtually everything we owned, which we were newlywed, so it wasn't actually all that much stuff, but we lost a lot. And I can tell you that 11 years later, there's still residual to that. I'm more vigilant about locking doors 11 years than I was back then. I sometimes, well, still to this day, the first thing I go and do when we get back from a vacation or a trip away is go walk into our living room and see if the TV's there. Literally. Just because it, it has lasting impact. And yet... I have to make a legitimate ability, a legitimate stand to not live in that fear, right? Like I have to legitimately walk and say, look, God is my protector. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to be stupid and just leave my doors unlocked and be like, well, God's God and I'm good. But I'm, I'm not going to live in fear of that. And it would be easy for me to live in fear of that because it was this traumatic thing that we walked through but I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to make a legitimate choice to not do that. And that's forgiveness, right? We have to make a legitimate choice over and over and over, often daily, even multiple times in a day, to not live in unforgiveness. So let me ask, what unforgiveness or bitterness are you harboring? Who do you need to stand ready to forgive? Who do you actually need to go and forgive? Look, church, I know this is hard. I do. I know this is challenging to talk about forgiveness. Because some of you are walking through some really heavy things. And some of you, I know what that is. Others, I don't. And yet, I'm telling you, the ability to stand ready to forgive is essential to your spiritual health. It's essential to your relationship between the Lord. You can't harbor unforgiveness. You can't live in that church. And you don't have to. We have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? That's the last passage that Jamie just preached in our series in Hebrews. Did Jesus experience anybody that he needed to forgive? Anybody sin against Jesus? Did Jesus experience any sin? How about all of it on the cross? Every last one of the sins of the world he bore. He gets it. He can walk with you in it. And if we want to be a church that lessens church hurt, right? We're never going to fully get away from it. Hurt is going to happen in this church, right? It's going to happen. If I haven't made you mad yet, I probably will at some point. 
But if we want to lessen that, if we want to lessen the impact and the effect of that, what do we do? We seek forgiveness. We pursue reconciliation. That's the thing we go after. If you want to lessen the church hurt from your past, what should you do? Seek reconciliation. Pursue forgiveness. That's what you need to do. If you want to see relationships restored, if you want to see healing from your church hurt, if you want to avoid church hurt, reconciliation, forgiveness are the things that we pursue. We press into Jesus. We press into restoration. And it's hard. And we need his help. But we live in the depth of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Because not only did he make a way, he understands. He gets it. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we love you, and we understand that um, forgiveness is hard. Reconciliation is hard. Tension is hard. Making relationships, um, pressing into those relationships in such a way that is honoring to you is a challenging thing because as sinful people, we sin against one another. And yet, God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for uh, the depth of the, the call for us to pursue the wandering sheep. Because at any point in my life, I could be a wandering sheep. I can be one that is not following your word. And God, I want pursued. I want people to come after me and call me to the mat. And I want to do that in love for other people. God, would you make us a church that does that? Would you make us a church not um, willing to gossip, not willing to go to someone else when I haven't gone to my brother about it? God, that's a work of your spirit to convict our hearts, to remind us reconciliation is our job. So would you do it? We'll trust you for it. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to say this as we, as we close. If some of this hit really close to home, if you're like, I, I don't know how to walk in forgiveness in this thing, come talk to me. Let's talk about it. Jamie would love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you. We have counselors and small group leaders who would love to talk with you and help you walk through that. We're here to help walk arm in arm with you through the hard thing. Thanks, church. Have a great week. You are left.